0: Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at
1: centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was given by Nicole Reinhardt of Durham University as part of the Ushaw Lecture Series. The lecture is entitled Sin, Confession, and Politics, Royal Confessions in 17th Century Catholic Europe. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Thanks, everybody, for coming out here. Uh, I wasn't expecting it to be so cold. (laughs) And um, thank you also to my colleagues from the history department, who have really been very supportive during the years of research and have made it possible for me to publish uh, the book that I have recently published. So today, I want to start at a probably a bit unusual end uh, with a caricature produced during the French Revolution. Um, It shows a member of the third estate taking confession from a member of the nobility and from a priest. And the writing below, the etching, explains that the confessor pronounces a general absolution. The past would be cancelled out and forgotten, and all would live from now on as brethren. Above the confessional box, where the traditional iconography would have placed the dove representing the Holy Spirit, we find the jacobine red bonnet. the Phrygian hat. So the inversion of the symbol seems to suggest that the will of the people as a whole, the Volonté Générale, had replaced the Holy Spirit, as if finally an old saying had come true according to which the voice of the people was the voice of God, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. Importantly, the caricature suggests that confession had become a symbol of the old regime and not necessarily a good one. It had to be overturned. Those previously in charge of the tribunal of conscience had failed in their office and had to be replaced by the third estate, the nation, as ABCS said it was. It is curious, too, that the new beginning is seen not in terms of an imminent bloody retribution and reckoning but as doing penance by which past sins are confessed and absolved, allowing for a fresh start and a restoration of peace in the community. In its ironical inversion, the caricature is a last echo of the high hopes that had been placed since the 16th century in the capacity of confessors, and especially in royal confessors, to achieve good politics. In fact, This caricature, in a way, speaks of the utter disappointment of such hopes, which had started to settle in already in the middle of the 17th century and were omnipresent by 1700. Voltaire, in his history of the reign of Louis XIV, said, It is remarkable that the public, in the end, forgave Louis XIV for all his lovers and maîtresses, but not for his confessor. And across the Pyrenees in Madrid, a disenchanted royal chaplain bemoaned towards the end of the 17th century, we have countless manuals to direct the conscience of the common man. But to this day, no moral theologian has tried to solve the problem of the royal conscience. Just as if princes were without sin and as if God had set out rewards and eternal condemnation only for their vassals. So this assessment actually is not true. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent so much time working on the book. And I will try to explain (laughs) that later. Uh, Nonetheless, this widespread disenchantment with royal confessors was so important that it unleashed a torrent of satirical literature in the late uh, 17th century, which denounced royal confessors as the cause uh, of absolutism and its excesses. The caricature, in a way, is just a last example of this. Since the 17th century then the question of the royal of the role of royal confessors in politics has been obscured by a solid black legend and many conspiracy theories about wily Jesuits. They came to be seen as illegitimate elements of the political landscape of the old regime, typical of its alleged confusion of politics and religion and ultimately an irrational medieval hangover. In one word, they were the incarnation of all that was anathema to the Whig interpretation of history. My approach is slightly different, as you might imagine. I think, first of all, we have to note that the emergence of royal confessors as political counselors is not a medieval phenomenon at all. Actually, its beginnings can be dated to the middle of the 16th century. Of course, medieval princes had had confessors always. But these, uh, at least since the 13th century, these are permanent features of uh, the royal chapels and the charitable duties that were associated with them. But the rise of the royal confessor as a political counsellor Uh, seems to be intrinsically linked to the confessional age, that is, uh, to the age after the Reformation, when uh, the tensions between religion and politics had become especially apparent. If confessors were now called upon to assist monarchs in politics, this was not because they were seen as illegitimate or useless counselors, but to the contrary, because they were expected and meant to be important and useful. In Spain and elsewhere, royal councillors came to be integrated into royal councils. This was not so because uh, the clergymen had boxed their way in, but often because lay councillors called on them to give guidance on aspects of politics that were seen as problematic to the king's conscience. This was the case uh, for many Catholic monarchs across Europe, uh, with the exception of France, uh, in the sense that in France, the confessors were not uh, physically present in the royal council institutions, but they were still important members of the political entourage of royal advisers, and next to the royal favorites. We have, therefore, to ask what expertise made these confessors so valuable. And the most important one that one can cite here is that of moral theology. Again, this is a discipline that came into its true being, we can say, only after the Reformation. Moral theology is a discipline of how to examine moral problems. And it became now a distinct branch of theology, a discipline uh, after the European Reformation. And it was important, especially for Catholic priests, who had to be trained for the confessional, as we all know. But Catholic uh, political authors also thought that knowledge of moral theology was extremely good for political decision making. And one example uh, for this is the famous uh, political writer and former Jesuit, Giovanni Botero. He recommended the Council of Trained Moral Theologians as an antidote against Machiavellianism. In his landmark study on reason of state in 1589, he coined the word reason of state. So the idea is, as acting without full information and counsel was sinful, The presence of a moral counselor helped to avoid acting in sinful ignorance. Therefore, it was much more about preventing sin through good counsel than about evaluating sinful behavior in confession after the fact that also played a part, but that was not the main point. So having the royal confessor covering this aspect instead of an unrelated theological expert, it signaled to the wider domestic and international public that the monarch had understood the gravity of the problem and that he was aware of their significance for his own exercise of power. And we see later on uh, how uh, this had an international dimension indeed. Another point is important. If we want to understand the role of confessors as royal counselors, we have to accept that the boundary between politics and conscience was drawn differently in the early modern period. Therefore, the analysis of the role of royal confessors not only reveals how the boundaries were drawn, but also how the conflicts that arose around the agency of royal confessors shifted the boundaries, and contributed to modern-day understandings of politics as disconnected from the sphere of confessions. So in the following, I want to show first how the duties of the royal confessors were defined, what understandings of royal sins they brought to the job. And in the second part, I will focus closely on one single case of conflict between uh, the relatively famous Cardinal Richelieu and the less famous nowadays are Nicolas Cossin, the confessor of Louis uh, XIII. So this conflict, I think, will illustrate uh, the ways in which royal confessors became an attribute of Catholic monarchs, but also an object of uh, competition between Catholic monarchies. And it will also highlight the difficulty of the job and uh, probably explain why the mission in the end was an impossible one. So, as I mentioned earlier, it is not true that there was no literature to talk about royal sins in the early modern period. One of the first and probably the most famous Catholic confession manual of the time uh, which was written after the Reformation and which became the most groundbreaking confessional manual uh, was written by the Spaniard uh, Martin de Aspilcueta. and it was published in 1552 in Portuguese because he held the chair um, of canon law in Coimbra, and it was later translated into all major European languages and also into Latin. But the important thing it was available in the vernacular. And it was regularly republished long into the 17th century. And historians of confession consider it really as the classical manual and the most famous and authoritative handbook of its type. So the author is no longer a household name today, but he was probably one of the most widely cited theologians in the 16th century, uh, sort of contemporary theologians, usually influential also because he developed... Uh, the theory of mental reservation. He also was the first one to identify uh, the causes of inflation. So he was a a big mind. And throughout his lifetime, he resisted offers from Charles V and from Philip II to join royal service. And he preferred his professorship in Coimbra and later that uh, in Salamanca. And towards the end of his life, he transferred to Rome from where he defended Archbishop Carranza who had been accused of heresy. Well, that's the primate of Spain. Uh, He had been accused of heresy by the Spanish Inquisition. So Carranza defended him and in the end got him out. But then Carranza died. Never mind. So he was no friend of the Spanish Inquisition and also highly critical of Spanish politics. And this skeptical attitude is visible also in the Manual of Confessors. In the chapter on royal sins, he identified 25 questions that confessors had to ask their royal penitent. And they centered mostly on questions of just and unjust war, royal expenditure and taxes, and justice. I'll talk you through these questions, and they're quite interesting in themselves. Uh, in the brackets, uh, you find sort of the qualification of the sins mortal, venial and also in the square brackets, uh, the uh, authorities that he quotes uh, to make his point. So on war, he uh, said one should ask whether there was a desire or attempt to conquer other territories against human or divine law, or if territories acquired in such a way had not been returned, because this was unlawful, they should have been returned, or if they were badly governed. If they were well-governed, If this had been done for physical pleasure to acquire riches, glory, or honor, all this was venial and dangerous. If the prince had been involved in inextricable conflict with other Christian princes and refused to accept a reasonable settlement so that the infidels had free way to diminish the Christian church. If they had waged unjust wars out of lack of authority or lacking a just cause. And in case of a just war, whether they had done so with unjust intentions. So unjust intention would be uh, out of jealousy, out of greed, out of vengeance. All these are not uh, qualified reasons to engage in war. Interesting, too, the question on expenses and tax taxation. If the king, out of laziness, did not gather artificial treasures of gold, silver, or money, and is therefore unable to assist the country in necessity, like famine, war, and plague, which are foreseeable and therefore should be paid out of the royal purse, and if instead he took loans from the subjects, which are likely to do them damage and injustice, if he pressured his noblemen to borrow at high interest with damage to the poor, or from merchants domestic and foreign, putting his realm at risk, mortal sin. (laughs) So uh, unnecessary expenses, exceeding his own income, putting him in such a necessity that he had to take from others unjustly. So that's basically taxing others. Or if he failed to reimburse his credits without agreement, that was something Spanish uh, monarchs did quite often, defail defaulting on their credit and then leaving the creditors um, with uh, the losses, or if it was with agreement and this, quote, damage to the royal treasury because of increased interest. And then sale of offices at excessive price or to such people that abuse of office was encouraged, or if sale of offices uh, should generally be avoided, if, Uh, one had um, a superior and then also if there was a prescription against the practice and there was indeed a prescription against sale of offices in the Spanish laws in the partidas but Charles V went ahead no matter what Um, finally justice if due to negligence vassals were not pacified if they didn't have what they needed for their life such as apt governors, necessary laws, arms, and arts exercises to defend themselves from their enemies when necessary, whether according to the judgment of prudent men, the king had endangered his commonwealth. If he had prohibited the people from defending freely their common good and their liberties guaranteed by divine and human law, this is important because it gives a sort of a right to self-government and to the defense of acquired rights to the communities. And especially uh, if these were confirmed by oath or if he had confiscated the commons for himself, mortal. And distribution of offices to ignorant people who lacked judgment. Interestingly, the word for judgment is consciencia and not removing these inept offices once it had become apparent. And exercise of justice without hearing the accused, allowing for this defense or if condemnation was based not on public proof but on private knowledge. And the same principle apply to all offices, benefices, university chairs, and other honors that nobody can be deprived of without public hearing. So this is basically the rule of law that has to be uh, maintained and confirmed. Open public justice, no uh, secret justice. So, as you can see, these are very uh, extensive and eminently political questions. And they illustrate that the confessor's potential area of intervention touched on all major political questions. But a striking point is, in all this, Aspilqueta, uh, Aspilqueta did not identify the protection of the church or the religious constraint of subjects as a royal duty. And I think this is remarkable for a 16th century Spanish author. He's not alone in this. but um, So the important thing is that the confessor, in his conception, was not there to protect uh, the church or uh, to do, uh, or to force the king, for example, to implement the Inquisition. This was because Aspilqueta considered church and state as distinct and ordered to different ends. And by consequence, he did not think that the states could call to arms for religious reasons, for example. So the opposition to the Ottomans and infidels, as he calls them, was legitimate only in as far as they had occupied formerly Christian lands. It was not a religious war in this de- definition. So it was a legitimate defense. And the same applied then also to the religious contra- constraint of subjects. This was to be left to the competent ecclesiastical tribunals. And here he placed more hope in confession than in inquisition. So Aspilquita's list was a general reference and remained a general reference for most moral theologians. He's quoted all the time. And uh, the di- topics that he raised remained important. and remained in discussion throughout the 16th and 17th century, where the debates moved on, especially on taxation, where he had been extremely conservative. But uh, when it came to war and justice, uh, it remained fairly much on, on this line. So the second question we have to ask then is whether there were prescriptions for the conduct of confessors at court. So this is what they should deal with. But what about the confessors themselves? And curiously, uh, the writings are, on that matter are not abundant at all. The only religious order who ever bothered with regulating the conduct of their confessors were the Jesuits. So, between 1593 and 1608, General Acquaviva issued a series of regulations on the matter, and these warned uh, royal confessors from um, not to interfere in questions of reason of state, and the. Regulations had been triggered mainly by the conflicts in France and by the opposition of, of the French magistrates in the parliament who opposed King Henry IV's uh, reintroduction of the Jesuit order in, uh, to the parliamentary district uh, in Paris, and also his decision to choose the Jesuits as his confessors. So um, that was the main reason to then create an extra regulation that would keep uh, These Jesuits uh, immune from, or should have kept them immune from, the suspicion that they were sort of uh, formulating royal policies. It didn't do that, but the regulation was still there. On the other hand, however, the Dominicans, uh, who were the most important order to uh, be the confessors in Spain, never had any kind of regulation that uh, sort of limited their uh, action or role uh, at the court. So in this context, uh, the most uh, significant book was that by Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. In 1619, he published A Mirror for Princes, very classical, in which he introduced a chapter regarding the royal conscience. And here he insisted that every Catholic monarch had to have an expert confessor who should be able to conform to uh, what we've just said, uh, to the duties uh, to care for the royal conscience. Importantly, he stressed royal confession had to be complete and therefore it had to include the conscience of the private person, but more importantly the conscience of the monarch as a public persona. So that is exactly the political sins we were talking about. And he insisted that these sins were most important, the most important aspect of royal confession Bellarmine warned that confessors should not have any courtly ambition and remain outside political battles, he said. They should not meddle with politics. So this is, of course, a contradictory statement, at least at first sight. How could one counsel on taxes, war, etc., without meddling in politics? And in order to understand this statement, we have to reconsider how Bellarmine defined and understood politics. In Bellarmine's understanding, politics was essentially politicking, sort of factional, partisan action in the court. And it was also subordinating conscience to reason of state. Uh, so that's more the sense of the French politique. Huh? So, um, And that was not what the confessor should be about. Huh? He was only called to judge the royal conscience uh, but not only after the fact, but also as a counsellor in advance of everything. So, undoubtedly, this slightly complicated uh, conception of the royal confessor put the confessor always in a very uncomfortable position. And it is no wonder, therefore, that the history of royal confessors is indeed littered with conflict. So the nature of these conflicts were quite different in Madrid and in Versailles. To put it uh, briefly, while confessors were well accepted within the Spanish council system, and uh, many clergymen, but also many laymen, at the end of the 17th century in Madrid, complained that the service over time had become too worldly and too cold, courtly, that they had made too many concessions to reason of state arguments, and even to outright Machiavellian politics. And in France, on the other hand, the situation was a little more complex, because confessors were not part of the royal council, but they were sort of hovering around in the court. And the public was often hostile and suspicious to the Jesuits, which was probably one of the reasons why they had been chosen as confessors in the first place, because they didn't have any allies, or not so many. Um, So moreover, then the royal favorites and the first ministers normally uh, monitored the selection of the royal confessor, and the moral authority of the royal confessor could be a threat to uh, the other councillors at court. So this was the French situation, where there was more suspicion of the confessor getting too much involved in politics. So this is uh, what I want to illustrate now with a special case uh, of France. So as I mentioned earlier, a drama unfolded in 1637 at the French court, and it involved Cardinal Richelieu and the Jesuit Nicolas Cossin, whom we see here. So um, it is interesting to to note that Cossin's tenure as a royal confessor was one of the shortest in history. It lasted hardly nine months, from March to December 1637. The conflict between Richelieu and Cossin came as a surprise to both sides, especially as Richelieu himself had handpicked Cossin for the position. Cossin was what we would call a trophy confessor. Because if politicians nowadays have trophy wives, at that time one had trophy confessors. If, um, and so he was one of the most celebrated preachers in Paris at the time. He His sermons drew an enormous audience of the high and mighty, uh, uh, and he was a super famous author as well. He was a literary scholar, and he had written a bestseller with the unlikely name, The Holy Court. Um, so, The Holy Court uh, was published first in 1624, and it was a runaway success, immediately translated into English in 1626, and we have several volumes of it here in Durham. So the Holy Court tried to show that Christian morality was compatible with uh, courtly life. Noblemen, warriors, court ladies all could learn how to lead a good Christian life if they just followed the examples Cousin set out in his book. So these were mainly commented biblical stories, retellings of biblical stories, but you would also find Mary Stuart, for example. The the book in itself merits a long analysis, which I cannot deliver here. But so given this uh, credential, we could ask what could go wrong with a man so well prepared to be the royal confessor. Well, indeed, everything. Probably because Cossin, was convinced that there was a place for Christian virtue at court, he took his job extremely seriously and he followed the teachings and the moral theology um, to the letter in his counsel to Louis Thirteenth. The high-profile fallout between Cousin Richelieu is well known because both sides put their view on paper to justify their actions before the tribunal of history and public opinion. But to this day, uh, The historians have mostly focused on Richelieu's views, who were published also at the time, whereas Cousin's remained manuscript. So my question is not so much uh, whether either account is true, but rather to take them as expressions uh, of conflicting conceptions of politics and conscience. And as we shall see, the confessor and the cardinal had very different maps of of the frontier between conscience and politics. And this meant also that they had very different views of what the confessor's duties were and what the scope of his actions should be. Cossard took a stand on two issues, but actually it came across initially only as one, and that was the problem of filial piety, the question of how the king treated his mother, Marie de' Medici. From whom Louis XIII had been estranged since 1630, after which she had fled into exile. From that day, too, Richelieu had undisputed power in the royal council. So what seemed at first, first a question that touched on the private conscience of the king had huge political ramifications. Marie de' Medici stood for a Catholic alliance with Habsburg Spain, and in banning his mother, Louis Thirteenth had adopted the contrary politics of Richelieu. It was much more than a question of filial piety, but a struggle over France's exterior politics, in particular, of the on the position t- to be taken vis-à-vis the Catholic neighbors, and these are the Habsburgs. So Richelieu decided to sideline confessional Catholic considerations, and in 1635 he entered the ongoing Thirty Years' War by declaring war on Spain. And supporting Spain's Protestant enemies. So this is basically also the background to the Three Musketeers. Hmm? So <laughs> here we are. We now put onto the picture uh, Cousin, who's never talked about. So, but all this was already an established fact when Cosin joined the court. So these anti-Spanish uh, politics were already there. So he must have been slightly aware of what he was getting into. Okay. So Cosin's line of attack remained that, first of filial piety, and then he branched out from there. So he said this was an offense against the fourth commandment to honor father and mother. And from there, then, he addressed other questions that were squarely in the field of politics, and that included, and this is important, questions of governance as well as of war. Cossard believed that Riffelieu's influence was excessive and that his dominance in the royal council tended to sideline other potentially more critical voices. And this was contrary to taking full advice, as a king should. He also thought that the policies were wrong-headed and that they brought destruction to Catholics in Flanders and Germany, and this, of course, was a problem. He was most importantly convinced that Richelieu actually would not hesitate to in engaging in an alliance with the Ottomans to defeat the Spanish from the other side, basically, and it would not have been the first French alliance of that sort and uh, Cosin, always the avid reader of Aspilqueta, thought that this was intolerable so when in december sixteen thirty seven he intervened, a host of issues were at stake. We know about these debates then not because Cossin revealed what the king what he had discussed with the king in confession, that would have been illegal, but because he addressed these questions openly with the king in an sort of interview. When uh, Richelieu got wind of this, he did not hesitate. Three days after the uh, talk between the king and his confessor, he, uh, the confessor was banished from the court. Uh, there was no solidarity from the Jesuit general either, um, and it was agreed that uh, he should be sent to Camper in Brittany. That's really the utter uh, Western end of Brittany, and that he should uh, be, uh, receive a ban on any further publication. So the most famous rhetorician of the French Jesuit order was thus condemned to silence until Richelieu's death death effectively. This did not stop Cossard from writing letters or pursuing his literary activities away from the public eye. And once he arrived in his exile, he shot off a letter to Rome, to the general, in which he explained and justified his conduct and this is a rather lengthy apology from which I apologize to be quoting rather lengthily because I think it is extremely interesting and a rather unique account into of how he reasoned and how he bro- uh, thought through the problems. So, um, yeah, he said, The cardinal tried to make me all his, and I was not such an unexperienced member of court that I did not understand that he was stronger. However, I always rejected to let the idea enter my heart, to follow his intentions at the cost of my master's salvation. I always thought that this would have meant to become a courtier of another kind than I was supposed to be, and that for a confessor this was a crime rightfully punished by God's anger. So I closed my eyes to all human considerations and fixed them on my duty. I understood that the cardinal had no other intention than to make the state his God, and to dominate everything. I was horrified by such an unrestrained ambition, by his unchristian life, by such a violent government. And although I knew that I had a lot to fear in confronting such a mighty man, I decided to remain firm and rather sacrifice my life at court than my honor. After I had been with the king for almost a year, I talked to him, even outside confession, about all things which concerned his conscience and about the duties of his office. With tears in my eyes, I represented to him the suffering and anxiety of the church, the necessity for a good peace for the entire Christianity, the profound and frightening misery of his people, the obligation he had to think for himself about the government of his kingdom, and finally about the reunion of this house and of the sacred name of a banished mother in favor of whom pleaded the tables of, the law of God, uh, up to God's throne. I said all this with the sweetness and force I was capable of. And the king's heart was touched by this, and he was resolved to put it in order, in which I encouraged him, even offering to talk to Cardinal Richelieu in person, in his presence. But he intervened, and through my own brethren, had me put in the hands of his ministers to ban me to the remotest area of France, where I am now, and like I had always anticipated, and I feel very honored to suffer from this persecution in defense of the truth. So that's Cossard, and that's very much his style, and so it goes on, and I will give you another piece of it. And you can see that the he, his reasons are manifold, and one is the excessive influence of the royal favorite on royal councils. Cossard's Paper remain unpublished, as I said, but there are more papers uh, in, uh, in in the Jesuit archives. And there we can see that he reflected amply on uh, the good uh, good government, and that concerned taxes, uh, for foreign policy more widely, and a more aristocratic government. So Cossin regarded Richelieu's politics as incompatible uh, with moral theology. And he often, towards the Jesuit general, highlights that he was actually only following moral theology in his reasoning. It also followed from his job description, he thought, that is to advise on the moral pitfalls that affected the king as a public persona, arguing that in practice, this division between the public and private person was a very difficult one to really uh, um, outline. And he said... There are those who pretend that there are royal sins and then the sins of the man who rules, and that it, is in, uh, that it is sufficient that he accuses himself as a private person and not as a king, as the latter is reserved to his counsel. I would like to ask such doctors, where does the man's soul go if the king is in perdition? Do we have to assume that there are two souls in one person? that one is only the pri- that only the private man can sin and that the king stays impeccable? Popes, prelates, and judges, do they not have to respond to God about what they have done in their office? People's sins have often only small consequences, but those of a king endanger the salvation and may ruin the lives of millions of people. On him depend freedom, slavery, poverty, wealth, greatness, depression, peace, war, life and death, and the welfare of the provinces. Should it not be important to know how he goes about such things, not in view of entering into the details of the affairs of the state, but in order to make him understand what is conformed to God's law? Some agree, and yet they object, that nonetheless the confessor must not meddle with the affairs of the state. This would be true if he, the confessor, wanted to make the laws, to build weapons, to forge cannon canons and rule the currency, if he wanted to assist in the royal council, if he wanted to dictate public laws, and if he wanted to be a general without understanding or a chancellor without walks and water, then indeed it would be highly impertinent. So what he actually advocates here is a sort of general overview on uh, the good sort of rules of policy and politics. So Richelieu spent the next five years until the death of Richelieu in exile, and he used this time to rework the holy court. And the most important rewriting occurred in a chapter that was uh, dedicated to the men of God at court, that is, the confessors. And reflecting on his own time, he spoke of the confessors as strange birds in an unnatural environment. And he conceded that confessors had to adapt at least in part to courtly manners and sensibilities, they had to talk well, and they should not come across as peasants. But at the same time, he needed, they needed to keep the distance and to be able to speak freely and to be accepted and recognized as somebody who could actually speak without personal or factional interest. So it was fundamental to be a good advisor, and yet in the end it was potentially an impossible mission. The conscientious confessor therefore had to be fully aware that the exemplary conduct in his office might be the very reason of his fall, and like in the case of prophets, and he introduces a whole new chapter on prophets, the best proof of his dutiful attachment to his mission. So how did Richelieu actually stand on all this? We have to remember Richelieu himself was a very well-trained theologian, uh, and a quite good one, but uh, Richelieu did not mince his words nor fickle. A day after Cossin had been expelled from the court, he had an official statement printed in the Mercure de France, that is the sort of newspaper or journal, which was populated by his cronies and writers. He had a whole entourage on writers. And here he declared that Cossin was guilty of pl- planning a coup d'etat. This was also the judgment he wrote down in his memoirs, which were later published where the cardinal speaks about himself in the third person. So the cardinal was patient until this little father's folly or malice had passed all boundaries so that things were not merely a personal question any longer but threatened to ruin public affairs and to overthrow the state. The cardinal knew of this rather late because the confessor's bad service with his prince remains so secret that nobody can know anything about it unless the prince decides to make it known. In fact, Richelieu in his memoirs accused Cousin of having interfered with politics against the statutes of his own order. He had meddled in affairs of the state and this was politicking in Richelieu's definition. In fact, in Richelieu's eyes, anything that concerned the state was politics on which state ministers and not confessors should have the first and last call. And he made sure that everybody understood this from now on And he set up a new instruction for the royal confessors. In this guideline, he explained that from now on, the royal confessor was obliged, and I quote, in conscience to support in action and in words any decisions taken by his majesty or his council, unquote. For any questions, complaints, and qualms, the confessor had to turn to members of the royal council and best to Richelieu himself, who would then clarify things for uh, this uh, simple mind and... uh, than also for the king. Instead of the king following the advice of the counselor of conscience, accepting royal decisions, which ultimately were the decisions of Richelieu, had become a matter of conscience for the confessor, and arguably also for the subjects of France. Richelieu's move was clearly a power grab, which eliminated the last obstacle to his domination in the sphere, in the informal sphere, of counseling the king. And it was dealt with in the name of the interest of the state. And in the name of the interest of the state, all discussions on the conscience of the king of France had to cease. So he really clamped down on anybody who even mentioned that there was such a thing as a a royal conscience. But this did not, however, stop Richelieu from reflecting on the questions of other monarchs' conscience. Here, I would like to make a last but important point, which concerns the role of royal conscience in legitimizing international hegemonic policies, and especially in the competition between France and Spain. Indeed, when it came to legitimizing Spanish politics, Spanish political authors were in the habit of pointing out that contrary to what happened in France, Spanish monarchs were always consulting with their confessors. And a typical example here is Diego Saavedra de Fardo, um, who was also the Spanish uh, negotiator at the Peace of Westphalia, who said that in some places uh, princes use confessors only for the duty in confession. But he would just, he didn't want to go into the details here, of course, but he would just say that in Spain one has recognized how important it is to have a confessor assisted. Council of State to qualify and justify decisions and to enable government by correcting the prince if he fails his obligation. So, and uh, there was a lot of this in Spain. And of course, uh, Richelieu was fully aware of these publications. And they were used by French uh, unhappy Catholics uh, to discredit Richelieu's policies. So, um, what is interesting then when Richelieu reflected on the question in his political testament, which was uh, published only very, very uh, late in the 17th century, he uh, remarked that this uh, ample counseling of conscience in the Spanish monarchy was of no use at all, because in the end, Spanish kings died guilty as hell, if you want, and if not guilty, uh, uh, than anybody else. And more importantly, they died in troubled conscience, He said, many could save themselves as private persons, but are damned by their conduct as public persons. One of the greatest kings in our neighborhood recognized this truth on his deathbed, and he cried that he did not fear the sins of the Philips, but that of the king. And this is literally on the last page of the political testament of Richelieu. And this turned the tables on the polemical accusations that the Spanish leveled against the French. It is generally understood to refer to Philip II of Spain, but I think that it must have recalled the days, the last days of Philip III, who had died in 1621. And it had been rightly reported that Philip III had indeed not died with his conscience at ease. On the contrary, he had accused his confessor of having led him astray, not on account of excessive rigor, but because he had failed to highlight the perils of politics to the royal conscience. Philip III was indeed so troubled with remorse and so worried for his salvation that he refused to trust his confessor with a deathbed confession, which was quite a scandal, and that's why it was so widely reported. And uh, so I think Richelieu's ambiguous wording here allowed to blur the two Philips that had already died. So although Richelieu did not deny the traditional understanding of the significance of political sins, in practice he denied that royal confessors were adequate instruments to address these or to be even important in politics. So this was to become a fundamental tenet of French absolutism in the long uh, term. Whatever the royal conscience was, it was and could not be judged or perceived by the public and it had to remain an absolute secret. This brought about other and new problems which we do not really have the time to pursue here, but what is remarkable then that in the late 17th century when uh, satires on French royal confessors were rife, the only person that had never received a satirical attack was Cousin. Instead, he was remembered in pretty positive terms, even by French Protestants. And the French Protestant philosopher Pierre Bell stated in his dictionary that Cossin was somebody, I quote, who tried to do his duty as a good man. Thank you.
0: nation-state goes. So I some of that overlaps with those arguments that are going on at the
2: same time? Well,
1: um, I, well the French public was extremely suspicious of the Jesuits. <laughs> they didn't like them. Um, I'm saying the French public is a very broad generalization. But let's say uh, the uh, members of the Parliament of the Royal Courts uh, were not very sympathetic to them. And somehow, it's always, for me, quite um, incomprehensible because you can understand it on the back of the French religious wars in the 16th century, but there, the the huge culprits were actually the Dominicans, but they never received the clap for it. I mean, uh, the thing is, uh, somebody like Boucher, the Dominican, ran around still in 1615 to say that Henri de Navarre, yeah, he merited to be killed, of course. So this kind of Catholic uh, radical Catholicism was mainly something was brought through by a lot of Dominicans, not so much by the Jesuits, although uh, the French public would perceive it otherwise. For example, Mariana, uh, the, French, uh, the Spanish Jesuit, who argued that there was a right to kill a king who had become a tyrant. Huh? And so that was seen as an encouragement to kill the French king. Which it was not, although uh, it was seen as such. So there was this, this hesitation, well, hesitation is a mild word, against the Jesuit. On the other hand, uh, Henry IV uh, of France used the Jesuits as, and, and he confirmed them as uh, changing from the Dominicans, in fact, as the royal confessors for the French Bourbons. So the French uh, problems are linked to the Jesuit problem. And it doesn't go away. But the interesting thing is, even after the bust-up with uh, Cossin, Richelieu never questions that the Jesuits are the best ones to be trusted with the royal conscience. So we have a succession of Jesuits until the Jesuits are actually kicked out of France um, in the 18th century. And I think this is exactly because they're so much dependent on royal favor, because otherwise they wouldn't actually be in France. <laughs> at all, that they are useful, You see what I'm saying? They have no allies, and, uh, but the public is very critical of them. And um, what was an advantage when originally it was around was probably became a disadvantage in the late 17th century when uh, they were then identified with everything that was meant to be wrong with French religious politics.
2: So, if you could raise your hand, just wait for the microphone. Yes, thank you. It's all very interesting. Did these confessors, at least the ones who wrote, bring out examples of sort of ideal Christian principles that they would uh, connect to uh, to the. uh,
1: Not really. Um, The the interesting thing is that the point of royal virtue and the importance for royal virtue for good politics is actually something they like to skip. And I think this is for several reasons. Um, Because it was very much a Protestant argument that virtue and good politics were uh, meant to be together. They like to separate it. Um, it was to say that whatever the personal virtue of a prince, uh, that doesn't uh, connect to good politics. You could become a good Christian even under um, an awful prince. But the point was, uh, it was about the political sins huh? and there, uh, it was the guidelines, it was not the persons that mattered so much. Ah, it was the principle. It was the principle of justice, the principle of just or unjust war, the principle uh, of respecting people's rights, the principle of low taxation.
2: I'm <laughs> going this morning, We have 50 years in the British players. How was it before the justification into the Jesus in Rome became a public document? And secondly, who identified the confession confessor for the um, karma the court? Um,
1: <clears throat> this uh, apology of Corsart was leaked <laughs> like so often in uh, the cases. Um, it was it was a secret document. It, it's in it's still in the archives in Rome. But uh, there was early on a leak and it was a leak that was used to embarrass the French Jesuits Uh, and was printed uh, in very often in um, sort of compilations of anti-Jesuit material. (laughs) There you would find it. Um, Well, uh, Richelieu had very much, uh, well, every cardinal could identify and choose his own Confessor, uh, but yet the point is, who chooses the confessor for the king? And there it is the royal favorite, and in this case, Cardinal Richelieu, and later Mazarin. Um, and then when the big cardinals uh, disappear, well, it is something um, where then later Louis the Fourteenth doesn't have these big ministers anymore. So he takes the first Jesuit that is recommended to him, and then once that Jesuit is a bit sort of old and on the deathbed, that uh, Jesuit then recommends another one and so it goes. But at the end he has this uh, Pierre Lachaise who's his confessor for 20 years or more and um, who becomes sort of the the image of the royal confessor. So it's something that is sort of becomes a tradition within the French Jesuit provinces and they position uh, the confessors never come unaccompanied, so they come always as a double. There's always the confessor who is in charge, and then there's his companion. And then normally, uh, this is somebody who's built up for the position. Uh, so that's how it goes. Uh, I would going to say that I like the, 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 the royal sins by
2: that 16th century. Uh, uh, the things he wrote about the unjust war—I yeah. thought you could list those nowadays and pass them up to readers of various countries. Mm-hmm. But I did like the one of the justice one, about mm-hmm. uh, not removing the inept office holders. Mm-hmm. One of those useless chair. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you partly answered the question I really wanted to ask you. How does one get the job of writing? You to say it's the, next of the of the...
1: World. Well, in, in France it's the Jesuits. Um, in, in Spain it's a little bit more complicated. So in Spain we have Dominican confessors. Uh, um, somehow there is a tradition of Dominican confessors, but there are also Franciscans who often are the confessors to the female members of the royal household. Um, the selection process is... It's not quite clear, but here again, the Dominicans also come in pairs. Well, what I could see from the qualifications that they bring to the office is the, the in the Spanish is much higher than in the French royal confessors. So the Spanish royal confessors have all been professors at the university of moral theology, have been administrators of Dominican provinces, and uh, were then sort of already quite famous when they were chosen. In France, it's a little bit different with the Jesuits. It's um, the they are people of a certain profile, but not necessarily with a university background or a background that is limited to the Jesuit colleges. And actually, sort of the caliber of moral <coughs> theology is decreasing in the 17th century. So, for example, Père Lachaise was not known for uh, an ex- being an expert of moral theology, but of being quite a good mathematician. Cossard was known as a rhetorician, not necessarily for expert knowledge or having ever had a chair in that area, but he was this uh, super well-known writer and uh, who seemed of such great prestige, I think, that Richelieu just wanted to have him. That was the initial thing. He was in the eye of the public. So he was unusual also that he didn't have any administrative knowledge within the Jesuit uh, order. He was just a famous preacher, but he had never really administered a province, and that's probably also one of the reasons why he really gets uh, a bit in a mess when once he is at the court. So I
2: understand the expert politician had an excellent uh but, <laughs> Was the king able to? There is hardly any
1: any any expression of that. Um, they normally uh, receive a confessor when they are sort of at the age of reason, or 12 or so. And uh, that confessor is then, is, well, they're normally young children, um, but sometimes they're already kings, and then that person accompanies them. Uh, but I've never really heard of somebody saying, uh, in, um, unless it was Philip III on his deathbed, saying, My confessor has betrayed me, I don't want to see him. I have any preacher from the royal chapel who can get, get my deathbed confession, but not this guy. And that was seen as absolutely crazy and, and, and uh, actually a fault in the confessor. And that is then sort of becomes a, a thing of public notice uh, and is used then to say, well, confessors must be more rigorous. Uh?
2: And there is significant part of the court and they sort of live there, take part in the.
1: Yeah, it's a visible thing. I mean, the deathbed confession is about the most important confession you make. And if the royal confessor's not there, (laughs) well, that's something one does notice. And if the king expressly says, give me any preacher you can get a hold of in the chapel, anyone will do. (laughs) Um, That also is
2: a statement. (laughs) Justly talking about. You started your book with a very intriguing cameo um, from the Westward series about an American president, yeah, calling it a professor. Um, do you think that there's any parallels or any comments that you could make from your studies in these centuries of the
0: House of American Presidents, to rely on people like William Graham or David Campolo?
1: Well, for the last ten years, I've probably been screaming at my radio and, <laughs> um, and trying uh, to say that actually they should all go and read *Aspera and would make them better politicians. Um, what what I find important, uh, and and that has been something that's been troubling me as well. I, I you know, is it important if somebody is privately a good man? Or is it really more important if he is good, doing good politics? And I would really come down on Aspir Quinker's point. I don't care what he does as a private person, in a way, as long as the politics obey the principles of justice. That would be my position, really. The question is, can that be the case? I think it can be. In some cases, we have seen examples. You know, Think of Lyndon B. Johnson. Not necessarily my uh, my best friend uh, for a glass of wine or anything. But uh, when it came to civil rights, he had the right, he'd made the right choice. And so I think what working on this book has brought out in me, well, it responds to an old interest in politics, but it also, I think, sharpens sometimes my questioning of what is going on now and the way in which politics is presented and understood in a highly personalized way, which I think it shouldn't be. It should be about the politics, not about the people. But some people think that their ego is more important than anything else, should disqualify them per se.
0: It's very interesting, and as a confessor for president. Well,
1: uh, first of all, he's not a Catholic. <laughs> so, it stops here. But what I find interesting, I've recently been thinking a lot about Decalogue morality and virtue ethics. And I find it very interesting that a lot of uh, American uh, evangelical groups have no problem with the current president, although he is the incarnation of everything that would count as a vice. So how much does Decalogue morality actually uh, give you? I don't know. I, I, I come back more and more to the idea... That vices are probably a better, or, yeah, virtues, vices, vices tell you more about a person.
0: <laughs> um, I wonder whether there are any parallels with people confessors, if that's an institution starting to grow up at this time. What do you mean? Oh, a confessor.
1: Normal confessors for a normal people. Oh, um, uh, there is no study uh, but they were Dominicans that's all I can say <laughs> they were Dominicans all the time and um, that is in itself probably quite revelatory um, the Dominicans were those who represented Thomas of Aquinas and as you've seen probably in my in Aspilqueta, he's an Augustine Aramite. But his, uh, the absolute guideline here is Aquinas, uh, an Aquinas understanding of natural law. And that is uh, what they carry with them. And they are, well, then, especially in the early modern period, Thomas of Aquinas becomes a doctor of the church, a church father. And then uh, the, the authority of Aquinas becomes so overwhelming for the Catholic church that having somebody who's from his order and who's never been convicted of a heresy and never been even in the doubt of heresy. Uh, just I mean, you know, can't get any better. Jesuits never really had that kind of cachet. Thank you very much well, You mentioned that uh, imagine being used right up to the present day as well. <laughs> <laughs> um just before I give final thanks to our speech, I'll just say a couple of quick announcements. The first is to say of course this is the
0: first section of the term. There are two more. So the next one will be on the 22nd of February and will be given by Dr. Jack Cunningham on the same process as Philip Perry's lost biography. So take a medieval Catholician and he's also claimed by, if you like, a Catholic tradition. For those of you who don't know, Philip Perry was a big thing in the English College of Banatulid, so if you like, a sister institution to this one. And this will be followed on the 6th of March by. side.